Good morning. We'll be reading from John 4, 1 through 26. When therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was, a, it was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman, therefore, said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealing with with Samaritans. Jesus answered her and said, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would ask, you have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than, than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered her and said, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not thirst again, nor come all the way here to draw. And he said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have you have well said, I have no husband. For you have five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you, and you people say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming where neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship which we know, for for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he shall he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's open up in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, just as you came to this woman and you met her where she's at, Lord, You come and you meet us where we're at, Lord. And today, we need to hear from you. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would would speak through your word, that you would use Tom to to accurately 
tell the truth that you want us to hear from this word. Lord, help us to trust you as the one who gives living water the true satisfaction. Thank you so much for coming. We pray this in your name. Good morning. When was the last time you were desperate for a, a drink of water because you had no way to get to a drink of water? As Americans, we are part of a rather small percentage of people on the face of the earth who never really have to expend any significant effort to get to drinkable water. We uh, tend to spend more money tweaking and carbonating and flavoring our water than some people on the earth spend just trying to get to water they can drink. We complain because the city tells us on which days of the week we can dump thousands of gallons of drinkable water onto our yards so our grass will look nice. Now, it's not evil to have an abundant supply of water, but it does make it a little harder for us to, uh, to get the impact of a passage like this. The average person living in Palestine in Jesus' day got from place to place by walking, sometimes for days, always in, an, in a land that was predominantly desert in terms of climate. There was no air conditioning, no cars, no bicycles, no running water unless you were really rich. For the poor, there was generally no water at all unless they did some real work to get to it day after day, over and over. Travelers would customarily carry a, a goatskin pouch with them on their journeys so that when they came to a well, they could hook it up and they could go down into the well and they could retrieve water. The roads were laid out on a journey so that you would you would chart your path so that you would know that you could encounter locations that had good drinkable water at a reasonable interval so you wouldn't die of thirst before you got to the next one. In fact, the path that the roads took tended to be more a function of where water was than how smooth the path would be to get from place to place. These were people who knew what serious thirst was like. God created all of us with bodies that are about 60% water by volume. And we all know firsthand that we cannot go very long without our next drink of water. Satisfying that need is a never-ending process. The Bible in both Testaments treats the physical needs that we have as earthly pictures, memorials, if you will, of the spiritual needs that we have. And the Bible at every turn presents God as the only source of both. He's the one who provides what we need physically, and He's the one who provides what we need spiritually. We need light, breath, rest, water, food. Man-made philosophies and religions tend to create a sharp divide between the physical versions of those needs and the spiritual versions. 
Gnosticism, which invaded the early church, believed that the spiritual realm was so divorced from the physical that it really didn't matter what you did in the physical because it didn't touch what happened in the spiritual. Others, the Stoics, treated the physical as a threat to the spiritual. And so you had to, you had to deny yourself the things, many of the provisions that God had given to you. But the Bible goes exactly the other direction. There are many, many passages in the Bible that actually blur the lines between physical and spiritual needs and provisions. And this is one of those passages. Our dependence on God for all things physical is supposed to make us constantly aware of our dependence upon God for all things spiritual. We have one provider, one source, in both realms. But lest we think that unsaved people are hungering and thirsting after God, and all they really need is to be pointed in the right direction, the Bible blows a a big hole in that notion at every turn. Just as fallen men deny their dependence upon God for physical things and depend instead on themselves, they deny their dependence upon God for spiritual things. Listen to God's indictment against His own covenant people, Israel, from Jeremiah 2, verse 13. This is very connected thematically with what's going on in this passage this morning. God says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. To hew for themselves broken cisterns. Augustine said, Thou hast made us for Thyself, O Lord, and our soul is restless until it finds its rest in Thee. I think that's a legitimate statement. But the reason that the souls of men suffer grievous thirst is not because they're seeking God and cannot find Him. It's because they have forsaken the fountain of living waters and they have devoted their time and energy and money and affection to digging waterless pits. They marry because they think that they can find fulfillment in another person who is as thirsty as they are. They have children often for the same reason and with the same result. Many store up treasures on earth only to find that as their pile of treasure gets bigger, the thirst in their soul becomes more and more pervasive. Many embrace Religions and philosophies contrived by people as thirsty as they are. They pursue wisdom and inner peace and justice and harmony as if men could ever be the source of such things. But their desperate thirst remains because they have forsaken the fountain of living waters. having turned decisively away from the only real source of every single thing that men need in any realm, they spend their imitation lives in futility, digging for themselves very impressive, very deep cisterns that couldn't hold water even if they could find it. 
if they knew the gift of living water and the giver of that water, they would ask him. And he would give it to them and it would become in them an endlessly overflowing well springing up to eternal life. Our passage this morning is about three things. It's about a gift, it's about our desperate need for that gift, and it's about the giver of the gift. Before we look at those three things, I want to make sure we get as clearly as possible the who, what, when, and where, the context of this passage. The people who lived in the region of Palestine called Samaria and who practiced, I'll go one more here, and who practiced the version of Yahweh worship that was peculiar to that region were very much despised by the Jews. The Jews who lived in the rest of Palestine and throughout the Roman Empire. There were several reasons that they were despised. One was that during the period of the kings when Israel and Judah were divided, the twelve tribes of Israel were split into two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Samaria was the heart of the northern kingdom. Those two sets of tribes were at war with each other for most of their existence as divided kingdoms. Now the Assyrians around in the the 8th century B.C. came into the northern part of this region and they took the Jews in Israel captive. And their philosophy for preventing an uprising among their, their captors, those that they had taken into captivity, was it followed two different lines of logic. One is, let's take them out of their land so that that national connection to the land would disappear. And then let's put them, scatter them among other nations so they'll have to intermarry and then they'll start worshiping other gods and they'll disappear. Their national identity will disappear. turns out that the ten tribes of Israel that were taken away into captivity by Assyria never came back to the land. The Jews that came back to the land after the, uh, after the captivity of the southern tribes in Babylon were Judahites, not Israelites. Okay? For about 300 years, the Samaritans worshipped God, worshipped Yahweh and other gods at a temple that was on Mount Gerizim very near the uh, the events in this passage occurred. That was a rival temple to the temple in Jerusalem. And the Jews didn't like that. That Samaritan temple was destroyed more than a hundred years before Jesus' first coming. But the resentment by the supposedly pure Judean Jews against the definitely impure Samaritans with their truncated word of God and their rival system of worship ran very deep in in Jesus' day. Now let me explain the truncated word of God. The Samaritans believed that only the first five books of the Old Testament were authoritative. The Pentateuch, the books of Moses. So they didn't know much of anything about the prophetic books, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the the Chronicles, the Kings, etc., Now, geographically, the most direct route from 
Judea in the south to Galilee in the north was through Samaria. Some Jews hated the Samaritans so much that they'd go over here east of the Jordan River and work their way up and then come back. But the most expedient way to get there was straight through Samaria. And of course, economic expediency tends to take precedence even over old animosities. So many Jewish tradesmen and many Jewish travelers took the same route through Samaria to get from Judea to Galilee that Jesus and his disciples took at at this particular instance. Jesus had his own reasons for taking that route. He had at least one divine appointment that he needed to keep. At roughly the halfway point, about a day and a half into the three-day journey, Jesus and his disciples came to Jacob's well. The well that Jacob, the father of all 12 of the tribes of Israel and Judah, had dug about 1,500 years before these things happened. By the way, the location of that particular well is very well attested, no pun intended. It's still provided by water, with water by an underground spring, and it still has a constant supply of good drinkable water. Jesus remained at the well while his disciples went into the city of Sychar, the nearby city, to buy food for the rest of their journey. Noontime, by the way, in a desert climate is the hottest part of the day. Verse 6 says that about noon, Jesus, that he was wearied from his journey. Now that is a good reminder to us that when Jesus... When the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, when He took on our humanity, He took it on in earnest. In fact, He took on everything about our humanity except the sin of Adam. So Jesus knew exactly what it was like to be weary, thirsty, and hungry. While the disciples were away, and about the time the sun reached its peak, a woman of Samaria came to the well with her water pot, Very likely, the reason that she came at the hottest part of the day was because she was trying to avoid interaction with the respectable women of Sikar who came to the well early in the morning and toward the evening when it was cool. This was not a woman with a good reputation, as we will see. When she arrived, a man whose clothing and speech clearly showed that he was a Jew, asked her to give him a drink of water from the well. Now, I just want to briefly comment on on this and then move on. This woman was a mess. She will see. She was a mess morally. She was an outcast. From From the Jewish perspective, she was someone you didn't associate with. But Jesus associated with her. Jesus actually reached out and made a point to talk to this woman. We uh, often quote 1 Thessalonians 5.22, and the, the popular translation says, King James says, avoid every appearance of evil. If our interpretation of that verse or that principle causes us to avoid people that Jesus didn't avoid, then there's something wrong with our interpretation. Right? 
If you're worried about the reputation of Jesus and you don't associate with people that he did associate with, then you're trying to protect something that doesn't exist. Oh, he has an amazing reputation. But his reputation was not built on avoiding needful, outcast, downtrodden people. It was built, it was honored, and it was exalted because he went to those very people. He asked this woman for a drink, and when she in turn asked him why a Jewish man would even be talking to her in the first place, the answer that she got from him was a 180-degree reversal of his original request. Instead of explaining to her why it was appropriate for him to ask her for water, he said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was this, in this woman's sandals, I would, I would be pretty confused at that point. <laughs> I'd be thinking, now, wait a minute, this guy just asked me for water. He shouldn't even be talking to me. Now he's telling me, I should have been asking him for water. But he's got no bucket to retrieve water to give to me. Surely he knows that Jews and Samaritans don't share utensils, so he can't use my bucket. Now he's referring to himself in the third person, and he's talking about living water. I'm lost. Kind of like the place Nicodemus arrived at after Jesus told him he had to be born again, and he talked about the wind blowing wherever it wants to, and like Nicodemus, I'm sorry, I'm lost. I find the woman's challenge to Jesus at this point to be very, very intriguing. First she asks him where he plans to get this living water since he's got no way to get it out of the well. But without waiting for his answer, she immediately shifts the focus from the water to the person. From the proposed gift to the giver of the gift. She says, you are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And she's still mostly in the dark at this point, but she's asking exactly the right question, isn't she? She's saying, how can you offer better water than Jacob if you're not greater than Jacob? She's connecting the legitimacy of the gift with the legitimacy of the giver. And that's critically important. His answer to her is, (laughs) I, I don't have an adjective good enough. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty forever. That's the best literal translation of the Greek. ESV nails it. Will never be thirsty forever. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water. In him, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Not the cistern that he digs for himself. The water that I give to him will be a well of water springing up in him to eternal life. Still struggling to understand what Jesus was saying to her, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. 
so that I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. At that point, she still did not rightly know the gift or the giver. But she humbly asked the giver for the gift. (laughs) And he proceeded to pierce her heart so that she could receive both. Now, at first glance, verse 16 makes it look like Jesus refused to give the woman the water he'd been talking about unless she went and got her husband and brought him back with her. But that's not what was going on here. Jesus knew very well that she didn't have a husband, (laughs) right? He knew everything about her just like he knows everything about you. Jesus was setting before this woman her need, her need for the gift that he was about to give to her. He had to do that with her just like he had to do that with Nicodemus and just like he had to do that with you. Because no sinner can know the gift of God until he or she knows that they need it. It might strike us as mean-spirited for Jesus to put this woman on the spot the way he did to expose the truth about her messed-up life so undiplomatically. But our Lord's words to this woman display the wonderful compassion of our Savior for a lost soul. See, this is how Jesus plucks us out of the darkness and brings us into his marvelous light. He humbles us. He shows us that we're sinners. If we've been denying it, if we're trying to sidestep it, He just keeps coming back to it until we get it. You cannot trust the giver of life for the gift of life if you think you already have life. He has to show you that you are dead, you are spiritually lost and dead and blind, and you've spent your life pursuing a lie. Thirsting after things that cannot thirst and building containers for water that can't hold water. Consider what Jesus' disclosure here about this woman's personal history pointed out about the condition of her heart. You've had five husbands and now you're living with a man without the benefit of marriage. How many of you guys have ever personally known, not known about, I mean, we all know about Elizabeth Taylor, right? How many of you have personally known someone who's been married five times there's one or two hands in the room right what would you tend to assume about a woman if you knew that she'd been married five times and was presently living with a a sixth man out of wedlock well there are a lot of things you couldn't necessarily know from just that information but there's some things you could assume pretty safely First, she probably wasn't the paragon of virtue. And since everybody knew her history and her community, she didn't have much of a reputation. It probably was not her sweet disposition that attracted men to her. She was prone to repeat sins and really bad choices instead of learning from them. And she had known very little fulfillment in her relationships with men. However you slice it, this was a woman with a very painful life. A woman who had a thirst in her soul that had never been satisfied, and she needed to come face to face with that 
with that thirst if she was going to know the gift that Jesus was setting before her and trust in the giver. D.A. Carson, in his excellent commentary on this gospel, talks about the critical connection between Jesus' conversation here with the Samaritan woman and his previous conversation with Nicodemus. There's a contrast, a very stark contrast between those two conversations, and there's an amazing common ground between them. The last four words of this little quote are the most important. He, Nicodemus, was learned, powerful, respected, orthodox, theologically trained. She was unschooled, without influence, despised, capable only of folk religion. He was a man, a Jew, a ruler. She was a woman, a Samaritan, a moral outcast. And both needed Jesus. And both needed Jesus. See, it it required no greater condescension on Jesus' part to have this conversation with the Samaritan woman than it had required for him to have the conversation with Nicodemus. And which one of the two did he seek out? Verses 19 to 20 the woman rather skillfully tries to sidestep the matter of her sinful history by doing the same thing that many people do. Talk about religion. But when sinners set out to talk about religion with Jesus Christ, uh, it's a one-sided conversation. After Jesus exposed the fact that this woman had been married five times and was now living with a man out of wedlock, she said, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. If you look up the word understatement in a dictionary, you'll find that quote right beside it. Right, right after the one where, you know, where Nicodemus said, we know that you're a teacher. This woman's little understatement seriously diminished the significance of what Jesus had just told her about herself. But you find out later when she goes to the city and tells other people about Jesus that she knew this man was no mere prophet. But Jesus was hitting a little bit too close to home. So she decided to try to change the subject. So she raises a religious controversy, hoping that that'll be the end of the discussion about her life. She raises the debate about whether Mount Gerizim in Samaria or Jerusalem in Judea was the right place to worship Yahweh. But her dodge didn't work, did it? (laughs) Because Jesus proceeded to make it clear that the place that people worship doesn't mean anything. It's about the object of worship and it's about the heart of the worshiper. Whether you're a true worshiper or not. In other words, if you're a true worshiper, your worship is acceptable to God. If you're not, it's not. In verse 22, he said, You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we do know. For salvation is of the Jews. It's from the Jews. As I mentioned earlier, the Samaritans had set aside most of the New Testament. They just had five books. And that meant that their worship of Yahweh was based more on ignorance than on knowledge. So you might think that Jesus' point here was, okay, we Jews, we have a great advantage. But knowing true things about God and being a true worshiper of God are two very different propositions. 
And Jesus is going to make that very clear. So Jesus levels the playing field between Jews and Samaritans. And I'm sure it surprised this woman to no end. He said, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Where you worship does not make you a true worshiper of God. Nicodemus, a member of the inner circle of the most revered men in Israel, a man whose whole life revolved around the system of worship based at the temple in Jerusalem, was no more a true worshiper of Yahweh when he came to talk to Jesus than this Samaritan woman was when Jesus came to talk to her. If you're a sinner saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you're called to follow Jesus. You're called to do the things that He did. That means you and I are called to speak of the gift and of the giver of living water with lost people regardless of who they are. Even if it's the man or woman that you find most uncomfortable to talk with. Even if it's a Muslim neighbor who refuses to set foot in your house because she considers your dog to be unclean. Even if it's a homeless young man who hasn't had a shower in two weeks. Even if it's a liberal, gay, English professor who likes to write scathing blogs about how hateful Christians are. They all desperately need Jesus, and they are all exactly as unworthy of Him as you were when He saved you. Sin makes us all equally condemned. It's a great equalizer. There's another great equalizer. All who trust in Jesus Christ are equally saved. Galatians 3, verses 26 to 29 says, You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. If Christ is your clothing, when God looks at you, does He see one of you as different from the other? As better says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. All right, we've talked about the gift and the need. Let's talk about the giver. Jesus told this woman that he had a gift to give, her, to, give to her, the gift of living water, of eternal life. He showed her that she desperately needed that gift. Otherwise, there would be no way for her to even understand what the gift was. But throughout this encounter, Jesus had been drawing her attention most pervasively to the giver of the gift. And that's where her focus had been throughout the conversation. When you read the accounts of conversations that people had with Jesus in the Gospels, you can't help but come to the conclusion that 
Jesus was controlling the conversations. He was even controlling, he was even sovereign over the response that he got from people, even when it was a negative response. And every conversation that Jesus had with an unredeemed person finished out with one very important question hanging out there in the air. Who do you say that I am? At every turn in this conversation, you can see this woman wrestling with that question. Uh, she, She seemed to understand that, again, that her conclusion about the gift that Jesus was offering depended on her conclusion about the giver. Look at her challenges and questions and statements. She said, verse 9, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? Verse 12, she says, You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Verse 19, she said, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. But she finally comes around to the threshold of eternal life with a statement that she says in verse 25. And that statement is really more of an implied question. She says to Jesus, she said, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Now having brought this woman down a path that he was controlling all along and to bring bringing her to this particular conclusion, when she said those words, Here's what Jesus said to her. I am, comma, the one speaking with you. Again, that's as close to literal as it can get in translation. I am, comma, the one speaking with you. At every point in his interaction with this woman, Jesus kept bringing her back to one fundamental question. The same question he asked Peter in Matthew 16. The same question that John identifies as the focus of this entire gospel, the same question that Jesus presents to every man, woman, and child on this earth, who do you say that I am? But the point of that question is always this. Do you say the same thing about me that I say? I, Jesus, that my Father says, that the Holy Spirit says. Do you say that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? That's the question. Beloved, we do harm to the gospel of Jesus if we present the gift of God as if it's somehow distinct from the giver. If our words make lost people think that they can be forgiven of their sins and they can have eternal life when they can barely bring themselves to utter the name of Jesus, then we're presenting a gift that doesn't exist. The words, I believe in God, or even I know I'm saved, need to be met with questions that put the person making such a profession face to face with Jesus Christ. Questions like, you say that you believe in God, what do you make of Jesus? And why did Jesus have to die? A real child of God will never shy away from those questions. 
and one who thinks he's a child of God and isn't might find that those questions finally bring him to the threshold of eternal life. We're not here to give out tickets to heaven or fire insurance policies. We're here to bring lost people face-to-face with the Savior of the world who also happens to be the judge of all mankind so that they may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Because if they don't, if they don't honor the Son even as they honor the Father, they cannot be saved. The gift of eternal life and the giver of eternal life are one and the same. The answer to the thirst of mankind isn't a religious system, it's a person. By verse 25, I believe Jesus had already removed the scales from this woman's spiritual eyes. I believe she knew exactly who she was talking to. She just needed him to acknowledge it. So she said, when the Christ, the promised Messiah comes, he'll declare all things to us. But here's what's cool. That's what he had been doing, right? He had been declaring things to her that only Messiah could declare. He alone could offer her living water. He alone could see into her heart and and know her entire history without ever having spoken to her or to anyone who knew her. He alone could tell her what what, what constitutes true worship, what makes someone a true worshiper. Because he alone is Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. He was showing her who he is so that she would know the gift and the giver and she would receive what he was offering. When the disciples of Jesus returned to the well, the woman left, perhaps partly because they weren't quite yet as comfortable about him talking to her as he was But when she left that well, she was on a mission. Verse 28 says she left her water pot. I'm going jumping ahead a little bit. Verse 28 says she left her water pot and she went to the city. (laughs) She didn't leave with the water that she had come to that well to get. She left with living water. The water that fills to overflowing. The water that puts an end to the thirst of the souls of men and women forever. And the very first thing that she did with that living water was share it. Nicodemus didn't do that. The disciples of Jesus didn't do that yet. But this downcast, outcast, despised, woman went with her, with the living water that was welling up inside of her and she went to her city full of people who despised her and he shared, she shared with them the gift and the giver. And God created a revival in Samaria through this lowly woman. Her testimony wasn't about water. It was about Jesus, the giver of eternal life. (laughs) She said, come, see a man who told me all the things I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? (laughs) She knew that it was. And pretty soon, many of 
those that she talked to knew that it was. Jesus says to every human being, give me a drink. We're here to serve Him. But we have nothing to give Him until He first gives His living water to us. And and the way we render it back to Him is by sharing it. (laughs) We give it back. We, We lift up that that overflowing water and we make it honoring to Him when we share it with other people. When we share it with everybody that's willing to listen, no matter who they are, no matter how much they look like us, no matter how comfortable it is for us to talk with them, no matter what it does to our reputation if we speak the truth to them about Jesus Christ, we're here to do what this woman did with the living water. And we're surrounded, as my brother Patrick pointed out this morning, we're surrounded by people who aren't like us. It's, you don't have to go looking for them anymore. <laughs> I grew up in a, in a suburban area in southwest Houston, and my high school had one black student in it. And he had to quit school to help support his parents. When Patrick said 40 years have changed a lot of things in Richardson, it's unbelievable. We're surrounded by people who are very little like us except in one very significant thing. They are just as unworthy of Christ as we were and they need Him just as much as we did. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for showing so many of us here our desperate need for your gift of living water. And we thank you most of all for introducing us to the giver of eternal life. May he love through us the lost men and women and children all around us just as he loved this dear woman at the well. Father, make us vessels of the water of eternal life. We ask it in his precious name.